Um, what are some big discoveries that have changed the world that we live in? Transistor, 1947, massive. So you like your iPhone? 1947 transistor, all right? You like Bluetooth in your car? 1947 transistor. You like to be able to hear me speak right now? That may be debatable, but <laughs> it's a transistor that lets us do that, right? So brilliant, it's transformed the world, right? How about auto flush public toilets? That's a Nobel Prize right there, man. You don't have to touch anything with your fingers anymore. Praise the Lord, right? All the diseases that are there. Ah, have you heard of the new one coming out of China? Anyone? Okay, don't Google it because you'll be just, you'll, you'll run from the room right now. So, all right, you don't have to touch that. Praise the Lord. How about caller ID? I am old enough to remember rotary phones. Remember those? Like the, the zero is forever. You're like, ah! <laughs> Dialing someone took five minutes, right? And then I also remember prank phone calls. Do you remember those? You could prank phone call people. Young people cannot prank phone call. You know why? Because they know who you are. Hey, you just called me and pranked me. Oh, dang it. <laughs> it doesn't work anymore, right? So call ID is brilliant. You don't have to answer the AIM financial services phone call. You don't have to answer Edgewater Christian Fellowship when it's me trying to get a hold of you. Like, nah, not today, right? Or whoever it is, brilliant. How about in-car entertainment? Parents, don't you love in-car entertainment? Be honest, you get like an hour or two of peace. Growing up, we took a trip from Grants Pass and we drove from here to St. Louis, Missouri. We had one form of entertainment. You know what it was? To fight and bicker. And we perfected it, right? This is my line. You may not cross this line. He crossed the line, mommy, right? You're just like, ah, I can't believe my mom didn't go insane and kill us on that trip. Like she is a woman full of grace and mercy, right? How about this one? Big one, he mentioned it, penicillin. So Alexander Fleming is the guy credited with discovering penicillin in 1928. The estimates of how many people have been saved by that are just 200 million, 500 million lives. Because before that, you could die from a splinter. Like it gets infected, uh, gangrene, you're dead, right? Well, penicillin changed all that. What you may not know is this, he's not the first guy that discovered penicillin. A guy by the name of uh, Dr., um, let me get his name here, Tyndale, in 50 years before that, actually discovered penicillin. Three years before Alexander Fleming made public his announcement, a guy discovered named Dr. Gatia. The only reason why Alexander Fleming today is credited with discovering penicillin. In his own words, he said this, I did not neglect to do something with my discovery. We're talking about the cross right now. We're gonna give you some information about the cross. Don't neglect what this is supposed to do to the human soul. Don't neglect 
to apply this, to take the antibiotic, if you would, of this information, because it'll change how you view the world. All right, so we're right now just kind of rolling through what the cross did for us. We did two last week. I'm gonna run through four today, and there's more. Apply these things, live them. They'll transform you, all right? So number one today is this word. It's a fancy word. It's expiation. I'll read Acts chapter 15, verse nine. And he, this is Jesus, made no distinction between us and them. This is Jew and Gentile in context. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Expiation to me is this, no more shame. And the idea is this, yes, we're forgiven of sins, but expiation is a different idea. It's you are cleansed from the residue of sin. Do you know that there's a residue of sin that can be left in the life of a believer? Like I talk to a lot of people and I'm amazed at how sin can stain the heart of a believer and something that someone did a decade ago still identifies them. Or even worse, in some way that a sin was done against somebody still controls them and dominates them years later. Sins like I was molested or forced into this sexual relationship or even worse, raped. Like those things, the, the residue of those, the lasting effects of them, to me, they're tragic and heartbreaking. And that's this, this thing that expiation is supposed to do for us, that we're no longer to live underneath the identity of those things, and people do. It controls them. This, this voice calling out from 10 years ago still controls people, and some people respond by just passivity. Like, I have no control over life. This is just gonna happen again and again and again. Some people, they respond with like, you know what? I'm dirty, so I'm gonna act dirty, and they go crazy party girl, party guy. I'm gonna mask this pain with just craziness. Some people become very tough where they put up these facades and they try to protect themselves. That will never happen to me again. I'll make sure of it. But they end up lonely because they can't let anybody inside. That's this term expiation. This is what's supposed to happen to us. So let me read for you what a prophet wrote about 500 years before the cross. And he's prophetically being told by God, this is coming for the believer. And it's brilliant. It's Ezekiel 36. This is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all uncleanness. This isn't sin right now, is this? This is something else. This is residue. This is the residuals. I'm gonna cleanse you. Who cleanses you? Do you cleanse yourself? No, God says it. I'm going to do this work on your behalf. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you might be clean, could be clean, shall be clean. From some, most, all. Get those words. This is an amazing prophecy. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, my ruach within you. Cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. How brilliant is that? This is what happens to the believer. Not just forgiven of sins, that's awesome, but the residual that's there, you're cleansed from it. Zechariah saw the same thing, Zechariah 13.1. On that day, what day? Calvary. There shall be a fountain opened, right? Not just a little dribble, a gushing fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness, the residual that sin leaves behind. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, not only are your sins forgiven, the residual, you're cleansed from it. I I don't feel that way. There is on this one a participation that happens between the work of the cross and also the walk of the believer. Okay, so let me read for you. You can look these up on your own if you want. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse one. Listen, since we have these promises, what promises? All the promises of the Bible. Read it, it's amazing. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And you can read the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 14 says this. These guys all arrayed in white, this massive crew that are spotless and white and beautiful. And the angel declares, these are those that have cleansed their robes. They've cleaned themselves. What? Does God do it or do we do it? Yes. It's like this. Jesus provides the soap, everything that you and I need. But like antibiotics, we gotta take it. We gotta use it. And here is one of the ways I think expiation works brilliantly. It's in community. That I can't tell you the number of times I have sat with somebody that retells me what has happened to them or something that they have done and they still feel the uncleanness and the shame and it's still puppet mastering them years later. And this is what I will do to them. I will look at them and I'll do this because I, as a believer of Jesus Christ, you know what I am? I'm a priest of the king of the universe. Every single person in here who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what you are? You are a priest of the king of the universe. We are the priesthood of believers. So every one of us has this opportunity to look at other people and to declare to them when they're feeling the uncleanness, the dirt of sin, we're able to say to them, listen, believer, you are forgiven and cleansed from that sin. 
And I don't know how to explain it other than the mystery and the marvel of God's spirit. In those moments, brilliant things can happen. Have you ever had somebody look you in the eye when you are feeling the weight of sin and your shame and your unworthiness and to look at you and in the power of God's spirit say to you, hold on. You are forgiven and you are cleansed from that unrighteousness. It's brilliant and powerful. It's why we have groups for that. For women that have been hurt sexually, we have this group called Wildflowers. And in that group, you'll hear over and over, listen, we know what happened to you, but you have been cleansed from that by the cross of Jesus Christ. It does not define you anymore. We have four, two, three groups for sexual addiction for men and for women. And in the same thing in that group, it's gonna be, listen, you are forgiven and you are cleansed. That does not dominate you anymore. That shame has been wiped away. We've got game changers and home groups and all those where the priesthood of believers act on their priesthood and tell one another this glorious truth that on the cross of Jesus Christ, not only were you forgiven of your sins, you were cleansed from the residue. Don't let it dominate you anymore. Apply it to yourself. Live that truth. So number one, believer in Jesus Christ, on the cross, you are cleansed from the very residue of sin. Number two, you've been made righteous. Check this one out, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I just say in righteousness, there's no more striving. Every one of us has a reason why we believe that we are righteous, don't we? Some reason that sets us apart from the rest of the morons of human civilization, right? And it can be just pedantic things like, man, I drive a Ford. Somehow that makes you a better person than everyone else, right? And then everyone else is like, yeah, fix or repair daily. I drive a Chevy. And then the real men say, I drive a Dodge Cummings 24 valve diesel, all right? That's the real vehicle. To all of them, I say a Volkswagen and I know what it is, all right? There's no, no debate needed, <laughs> right? We all have these things in our lives that somehow it's because of this that we're better. It might be our politics, right? I'm a libertarian, I'm a constitutional party, I'm a Republican, I'm a, I'm gonna say it, I'm a Green Party, I'm a, <laughs> I'm kidding, kind of. I'm a me party, that's what I am, just me, right? All of us have these little things that somehow they make us better than other people. And it's really, at the core of it, it's our righteousness. I get up at 5 a.m. every morning. I take a picture of myself. I've done it for 772 days in a row, and that makes me righteous. You 5.30 a.m. morons, right? 
We all have it. It's bragging. It's one up men, right? I'm a great parent. I'm a great husband. Whatever it is, we all have these things. I'm vegan. I'm sustainable. I grow my own food. I homeschool my children, right? Whatever it is. I recycle my gray water and I drink it, right? And I'm proud of it. We all have it. But the Bible gives us an example of a man who just did that. His name is Peter. It's a chapter ago from the cross where Jesus looks at the 11 remaining disciples and he says, listen, tonight all of you are gonna run away and you're gonna abandon me. And what does Peter say? Oh, not me. I'm not like those 10 morons. I'm tough. I will not leave you. And what happens to him that night? He loses his righteousness and he weeps bitterly. When we base our righteousness on anything other than Jesus, it is shifting sand. And there's coming a moment where you're going to lose it. You're not going to wake up at 5 a.m. You're going to wake up at 9 p.m. and be like, what happened? Right? You think you're a great parent and then your kids embarrass you. Okay, new parents, it's coming. Your kids will embarrass you. It's coming for you. Sorry. Right? Every one of us. It's coming. And then you're all of a sudden, what do I stand for? It's shifting sand. Well, here's what the Bible says over and over for you and me. You were supposed to be a kind of people that put our righteousness in one solid thing alone, and it is Jesus Christ, that he is our righteousness. The reason why we are acceptable, the reason why we are exceptions, the reason why we're different than any other human is one reason, because of Jesus Christ alone him. And when you do, something happens to us. You get this, I just call it a humble swagger. You know it's not because of me, but you know something brilliant has happened to you, right? That humble swagger. So I've been reading the book of Acts recently, and it's just amazing to me, the humble swagger these guys had. They knew who they were. Peter the denier, chapter three, walking into the temple. He knows who he is. There's a guy begging for money who is crippled. Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I to thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what does the man do? Rises up, leaps, and jumps for joy because he's healed. That's a humble swagger. Acts chapter 13, Paul is sharing the gospel, the good news of expiation and, and righteousness with this guy named the governor of the region, Sergius Paulus. And there's this bad dude, Elimus, who's a sorcerer who's trying to interfere with the gospel. And Paul just turns to him, looks at him and says, bro, you're going blind. And the man loses his sight in that moment. That is a swagger. And Sergius Paulus, the governor, believes in Jesus Christ and is saved. That's a swagger. Why? Because they knew where their righteousness stood. Maybe it's like this. A bunch of years ago, my 14-year-old Elijah, he was like four or five, and he was trying to figure out like, Dad, what are you exactly? So he asked me, he goes, Dad, are you the boss of Edgewater Christian Fellowship? Which is such a funny question. Like, how do I answer that? I'm like, well, why, buddy? Why are you asking this? He goes, well, I wanna know, do you own the church? I'm like, oh, great, this is even getting worse. I said, what, what would it matter? He goes, well, if you do own the church, dad, I wanna go up there and I wanna take out all the chairs in the office and I wanna play indoor soccer with my buddies. 
So this is what I told them. I said, Elijah, you are the church and you own the church. I want every kid that comes into Edgewater Christian Fellowship, every kid that comes in here to believe they own this place. That's why we don't have a bunch of rules here. That's why the kids are running around in here. I love it. Let them run around. I want them to think that they own this place because they do. You are the church. You own this place. You're the boss. It's yours. Have a humble swagger because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. This is just a little tidbit of what's happened to you because I want them to be like Book of Acts people. So John Knox understood this. And if you know John Knox, this is what he said. He said, give me Scotland or I die. And guess what God gave him? Scotland. And Scotland is transformed to this day because one man understood who he was in Jesus. Give me Scotland or I die. Queen Mary, bloody Queen Mary said this, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of Scotland. And she was right. She feared one praying man than a bunch of dudes painted in blue wearing skirts. (laughs) like Braveheart. And it was John Knox and his prayers that absolutely transformed an entire nation because he understood his righteousness. Give me Scotland or I die. The second great awakening, men and women with a humble swagger. If you know that in England where it erupts, they would go out in front of brothels and bars and they would go out there day after day after day and they would pray, God, shut this place down. And then they shut them down. And maybe you don't know this. There was such a transformation in the entire nation that England put its police force on furlough because there was no crime. Look it up. It's brilliant. That's how a nation is transformed. When a group of people understand their righteousness and like the book of Acts, they start marching around with a humble, humble swagger. God, give us grants pass or we die. Give us Medford or we die. Give us Merlin or we die. Give us Rogue River or we die. Or the real miracle, give us Cave Junction or we die. (laughs) Do you know your righteousness? I hope you do. Because it puts your feet on such solid ground, you have a confidence that the believer is supposed to have. You've been cleansed from the residue of sin. You've got your feet firmly planted on your righteousness. And number three, at the cross, you were justified. Titus 3, 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, justified as just as if I'd never sinned. And Jesus actually gives a story about how justification happens. It's Luke chapter 18. Let me read it for you. It is brilliant. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, the Peters, and treated others with contempt. I think those two always go together. When I believe I've done something that makes me righteous, I almost always look down on other people, right? That's what we always do. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, heroes of the day, and the other a tax collector, the villains of the day. The Pharisee, 
standing by himself. I can't be over there with those guys, right? They're sinners. I might catch the sinnies. Pray thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's pointing down at this dude. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Brilliant, brilliant story. You've been justified. How? Why? Why do we need to be justified? Both of these men went to the temple. They both went to the same spot. What were they after? They were after a connection with God. Do you know that? Every single human, all of us have in us an innate desire to be connected, to be in God's presence. I think you could summarize the Bible real simple. God with us. That's the whole message of the Bible. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, God with us. We have this innate desire to be close to God. But there's a problem in that, right? Is God good? Yeah, God is completely good. But it's like this, is the sun good? Yeah, I think you guys, the sun is good. It makes stuff grow, it's warm, it's brilliant. I love the sun, but I love the sun because it's 93 million miles away. If I was to get close to the sun, let's say 10 miles away, what would happen to me? I'm done, right? So the sun is great because it's 93 million miles away, but it's also dangerous. And getting close to the sun will undo me literally, molecularly. That's like God. God is good, no doubt about it. But he's also holy. And there's a danger to God that can undo you. And so the Old Testament is full of all these like rules about you gotta do all this stuff. Read about what the high priest had to do just to get into God's presence one time a year. It's called the Day of Atonement. The sacrifices, the changing of clothes, the purification, all these rites so that he could create this little clean space for just a moment where he could get close to God for just a second and then get out real quick. That's the entire Old Testament. Like how do we get close to this good one that we've been created for but also has this danger to him? And there's all these mechanisms by, what pe- by which people try to get close to God. Well, the New Testament declares something happens in Jesus that now we've been justified. And Colossians 3.3 says this, that we are in him, we're in Jesus, and because we are in Jesus, something has changed, and now we, because of Jesus, can come in. Maybe here's an illustration of this. Many years ago, it was 1998, I was in the school of ministry at Applegate, And we had this field trip where we went up to Mount St. Helens and we studied that eruption in 1981, in May of 81, what happened to the the topography of that area. Have you ever studied that? It's unbelievable. 
a mini Grand Canyon scraped straight through solid bedrock was created in a day because of that pyroclastic mud flow, just picked up boulders the size of this building and just pushed them straight through solid rock. Just, it's unbelievable what happened in a day up there. So just, we had done that. We'd done that for about a week. Well, two buddies of mine, Tyler Maddox and Matt Nicastro, we decided to take Tyler's 1987 Honda Accord and go drive up through Idaho out through Montana and come back because we are looking and praying for places to plant churches. So we're on this trip, we're, we're driving and we'd gone out and we're coming back through and we happened to drop through Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And we're in there like about almost five o'clock at night. I said, hey, one of my favorite Bible teachers is in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. His name, Chuck Missler. I don't know if you know him, but he was one of my dudes back then. He's since passed away. He's in the presence of Jesus now. So I'm like, hey, we should stop by his headquarters and just drop in and see if he's there. So I'm like, okay. So we, we drive over there and we pull in the parking lot. And just as only things could happen, he's walking out the door as we pull up. And I thought, here's my chance. So I hop out. I'm like, hey, Mr. Missler. He looks at me and goes, hi, just keeps walking. I'm like, hey, I really love your teachings. Hey, thank you very much. Keeps walking, right? I'm like, well, it's really good to see you. Great to see you too. And he's about ready to get into his Jeep Cherokee. And I thought, I gotta do something. Or this is, I didn't drive 7,000 miles to have him get in his car and leave. So I decided, all right, I'm gonna drop a name. I said, I'm in John Corson's school of ministry right now. He stopped, turned around. I love John. Hey, let me show you guys around. So we got in his headquarters. He showed us all around. He had like his, all these like packets, he called them, K, K rations and whatever. He's like, pick out all that you want. And they're like 45 bucks a piece back then, which is like $10,000 today. And so we each got a bunch of those. And, and then it was like, he just gave us the tour of the place. Just awesome. Introduces us to his son-in-law. And we're like, it was like now about 6.30. We're like, well, we're gonna go. And go, you guys wanna come up and have dinner? Yes, we do, as a matter of fact. So he had this compound, like they owned the top of this mountain. And so we went up there to the compound, had a meal, we were fellowshipping, it was just a brilliant time, like 10 o'clock. I'm like, well, um, we better go, we gotta go find a place to camp. You guys wanna just stay the night here? Let me pray about that, yes, we do. <laughs> God would have us stay here tonight, I think so, right? right? The next morning they made this feast for us and then just sent us out. Now, why did I get all that? because of someone else's work. I didn't do anything, he didn't know me. It's because of someone else's work. That's justification. Why do you get again into God's presence? Why do you get to the marriage feast of the Lamb? Why, why do you get all that? It's justification. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That's justification. That now you are in him, and because you are in him, the Bible says this, you can get close to the Son. Hebrews 4.16, we can boldly come to the throne of grace and retain, receive help in our time of need for one reason, because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross. Always, doesn't matter if you read your Bible, doesn't matter if you prayed, doesn't matter. You don't come into the equation. You are in Christ and he is what enables you to have access to the throne. That is is justification, and it is brilliant. 
Do you know you've been justified? That God with us, the big message of scripture has been accomplished on the cross for your behalf and you can march into the throne of grace and receive everything you could possibly want. Help in your time of need. Brilliant. Lastly, Christus Victor. So if you know Martin Luther, this was his big thing that the cross accomplished. Jesus was victorious on the cross for us. So let me read Colossians 2.15, maybe the best summary of what Jesus did on the cross for us. He, Jesus, disarmed. What does disarmed mean? If someone has a gun and they can shoot and kill you with that gun and that person is disarmed, what does that mean? You took away their weapon, right? Keep that in the back of your head. Whatever they had before, Jesus on the cross has disarmed it. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I just call this no more loss. So the big question is, who are the rulers and authorities? Is it Pontius Pilate? Is it Caiaphas? Is it the priestly order? Is it the sand? Who are the rulers and authorities? And that's the debate. So here's what I believe. Big picture backing up. Jesus on the cross makes this statement that a lot of people try to interpret. So on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Now, what was Jesus saying when he said those words? Here's what I believe. If you go back to the first century, rabbis would teach the Bible real simply. If they wanted a student to explore a certain section of scripture, they would quote the first line of it, and then it was the student's job to go and figure out what was being said by the rabbi when they quoted this. So Jesus quotes the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I think as a student, we should go look at what Jesus was quoting. So I'm gonna read Psalm 22 for you, most of it. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. By the way, the high priest quoted this to Jesus on the cross. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. 
Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What a crazy psalm. Written a thousand years before the crucifixion. Written 500 years before the cross was ever invented. But if you noticed, wow, it sounds like it's describing what happens in crucifixion. Here's what I think. Jesus quotes that to those that were listening and surrounding, thinking this is the end of the world. Jesus is dying to say, wait a second, this is part of God's plan. Read Psalm 22. This was prophesied a thousand years before it ever happened. That's why I think he was quoting it, to give hope to those that were watching. But there's a little section here that's interesting. It's verses 12 and 13. It says this. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. What in the world is that? This is using language of the Bible. So in the Old Testament, there are these long comparisons that try to give us the big picture of kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. So there's two cities in the Old Testament that keep popping up. There's Jerusalem, God's city, the city of Zion, the city of David. And it's a city that's supposed to be full of God's mercy and grace, his justice and his righteousness. And it was supposed to shine out to all the nations. Here's what happens when you follow Yahweh. That's the city of Jerusalem. But there's the antithesis of that city called Babylon. Starts in Genesis 11, bad beginning. They build the tower and try to get up to God, right? So it's got a bad beginning and just a devastating end in Revelation 18. It's everything that's evil. Everything that's wrong in the world is the city of Babylon. And these two are compared, right? It'd be like comparing Grant's Pass to Ashland, right? City of righteousness and the other one over there. And then there's also... This comparison of mountains, Mount Sinai, where God's will came down and God's word came down and God's presence was up there and his power was displayed. And actually, Exodus 19, God's people were actually invited to come up and be with him, if you know that. Great, airplanes. And then there's the bad city, or the bad mountain is called the Mount Bashan. And that's the mountain we're looking at right here. So you can read Psalm 68 for a great example. It says, King Og, bad dude, is reigning from Bashan. Modern, we'd say this. The son of Genghis Khan is in control of ISIS. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad, right? It's that language. Hey, this is really, really bad. So the area of Bashan was known for bad stuff. Even in Jesus' day, Caesarea Philippi was up in that area of Bashan where the gates of hell literally were at that goat god called Pan was worshipped. I've talked to you guys about this before. 
And Leviticus 17, 7 talks about the goat God. And Deuteronomy 32, 17 talks about the goat God, like really bad guy, stay away from him. And the people up there in Caesarea Philippi would worship the God Pan in ways that are absolutely disgusting. Jews were forbidden to even go to that spot. You guys know all this. That's this region. So what Psalm 22 is saying is this. It's giving you and I a sneak preview into the spirit realm what happened on the cross. The bulls of Bashan were gaping and leering. The lions were roaring. The, the spirit realm were surrounding Jesus in those moments, leering, mocking, saying, we won. They believed in that moment they had killed God. So you can read Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.8. He says this. None of the rulers, same idea, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They thought they were winning. Judo theology, Jesus on the cross, disarms them and destroys them and frees us from the region of darkness. Destroys evil. You might say, well, wait a second, Matt. If Jesus destroyed evil 2,000 years ago, why is there so much evil around right now? Here's why. If you're a history guy, you know in World War II, there was the decisive battle against the Nazis. It was the storming of the beaches of Normandy. Historians say, when we did that, and we lost a lot of people, when we stormed those beaches and pushed them out of the high ground and we took that high ground. The moment the allied forces took the high grounds of Normandy, the war was over. There was no way Germany was winning then. But the war lasted for another 18 months where evil had to be pushed back and darkness had to finally be surrounded in Berlin and extinguished there. And it was the most brutal, bloody battling in the entire war. That's like us today. Our Normandy, Calvary, disarmed, but the battle still rages. It's our job now to keep pushing back against darkness, to keep seeing it extinguished everywhere we possibly can, but we know, hey, battle's over. It was run. The decisive battle was fought on our behalf 2,000 years ago, and now we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So if you keep reading Colossians, what you find is this. It says, for the believers, there's no judgment now. Don't let the enemy judge you because he's been disarmed. Don't let his life, don't believe him because I said last week, he's always firing these weapons at us, right? And it's deceit. You're not a good Christian because you lied. You're not a good Christian because you failed. You're not a good Christian because you didn't get up at 5 a.m. You're not a good Christian because you didn't read your Bible enough. You're not a good Christian because you didn't pray. You're not a good Christian because fill in the blank. And so because that, you don't deserve a good house. You don't deserve a good life. You know, whatever it is. And we internalize those things that become self-fulfilled prophecy. And so verse 16 of Colossians 2 says, there's no judgment. Don't let him judge you. He's been disarmed. He just has lies now, right? Verse 20 says, he has no power. On the cross, Christus Victor. Whatever power the enemy had pre-cross, it's been disarmed and he does not have it anymore. All he can do is roar at you. That's it. It's like Jesus kicked his teeth in and he can only gum you now. Right? That's all he's got. 
And yet we allow his gumming, his lies to sit and destroy us. But we come back to, uh-uh, you have no power over me. Your domain has been broken. We're in mop-up right now. I am a child of King Jesus, and he is ruling and reigning, and I got to rule and reign with him. I stand behind my warrior king knowing he has defeated you, and I'm not worried about your lies anymore. That's what Christus Victor means, okay? So I just hit four. I haven't hit atonement. I haven't hit ransom. I haven't hit reconciliation. I haven't hit the example of the cross. There's more and more and more. We could literally do another Sunday of the work of of the cross on our behalf. It's massive. But just like antibiotics, just like Alexander Fleming, the way that these things actually mean something to you is when you allow the word to become flesh and dwell in you, where you live your justification, you live your righteousness, you live your victorious life. You live your expiation. Ah, no, that sin has been cleansed from me. So my hope in talking about the cross is not to just give you big words to know, but actually give you knowledge that sets you free from the lies and deceit of the enemy so that we can go out from this place and be the ambassadors of Christ that God wants us to be. So as we take communion today, my prayer is simple. May God's people know that we are cleansed from the shame of sin. May God's people know that we are righteous for one reason. You can't be any more righteous than God, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin that we might be the righteousness of God. You can't be any more righteous than that. We've been justified. We can come boldly into his throne room of grace. Why? Because of our work? No, because of Jesus. We have victory, not because we're strong or because we're great, but because Jesus is strong and great and he is our warrior king and he's disarmed them. They have no weapon. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. Why? They've been disarmed. So Jesus, as we take your body today, I pray that these truths of the cross will become flesh and actually transform us. Heal us from the bacteria of the enemy. Let's eat together. I pray that each one of us would know that we are cleansed, we are righteous, we are justified, we are cured by your blood. Let us drink together. Amen. So we'll sing one more song. After that song, tune in to 96.5. If you want though, There's prayer available for you. So right up front, there'll be people up here that would love to pray for you. And something, I can't explain it. It's spiritual. It's marvelous. It's powerful. Happens when one believer...
prays for another believer. When one believer speaks God's promises and truths and forgiveness and expiation to another believer. I don't know why it's that way, but it just is. That it goes deeper into our hearts, gets planted and watered and produces change. And if you need that today, there'll be people up here that would love to do that for you. And we offer baptism. Jason Folkstad, today's your day to be baptized. Jason would love to explain to you what it means to be baptized, what that does for you. And we'll join with you as Jesus authors and finishes your faith. Would you stand?